Welcome to another episode of Simple Medicines Podcast with your host, Hoji Alimi. My name is Kevin, and I'm Hoji's collaborator. On today's episode, we are honored to be joined by Dr. Akito Omora. Dr. Omora is Professor Emeritus at the Tokyo University School of Medicine and Chief of Staff at the University Hospital in Mitsonukachi, Kawasaki, Japan. From 1976 through 1979, Dr. Omora served as an instructor and then an assistant professor at the University of Utah College of Medicine. In 1979, Dr. Omora transferred to the Tokyo University School of Medicine in Tokyo, and from 2003 to 2007, he served as the Dean of Tokyo University School of Medicine. For the past 26 years, he has been the chief of the Japanese delegates involved in ISO Technical Committee 121, which is in charge of writing standards for intensive care units and anesthesia equipments. Here, he was nominated as a prospective international chair of Technical Committee 121, Subcommittee 3, which commenced January 2016 for a period of six years. He has written eight books on healthcare policy and reform, which have been referenced in Japan's current government policies as well as recognized by Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Oji and Dr. Omura will be having a broad ranging healthcare discussion with a focus on the differences between the Japanese and the U.S. healthcare system. We hope you enjoy it. Please keep in mind the intent of this program is to discuss the latest medical innovations in patient care. None of the comments in our podcasts are intended to be medical advice or to replace your physician's advice. It's important to discuss any ideas, procedures, drugs, or therapies with your physician first. Thank you. Hello, my name is Hoji Alimi. I'm going to be your host during this episode. I'm honored and privileged to have Dr. Akido Omura from Japan on the phone for this interview. We are going to speak about many topics involving innovation in Japan. Dr. Omura has written several books. We're going to also speak about uh, some of the topics that he has addressed in those books. Dr. Omura, welcome to, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I'm genuinely honored that you accepted this interview. First and foremost, Dr. Mora, I, I want to, many of our listeners may not be as familiar with the culture in Japan. And I want to just uh, comment uh, something about the Japanese culture and the society because it's very impressive. I've traveled to Japan many, many times over the last 20 years. Um, I have done a lot of business in Japan. And the progress that Japan has made since World War II as compared to many, many other countries that they have significant resources in oil, gas, minerals, uh, it is extremely impressive where Japan is today in terms of dominating the world of electronics, automotive, the list goes on and on and on. I just want to uh, ask you in terms of um, how the Japanese view progress, innovation, what, what causes the country to go at such a fast pace when you, we are talking about progress? Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, uh, uh, this is a kind of a difficult question. I'm not a historian or a cultural specialist, but uh, 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 if I you know, the, express my personal opinion, the uh, generally, Japanese are very diligent and hardworking people, and uh, we have the trait of 
paying attention uh, uh, to details, and this culture has a long history. I think the trade has been behind the amazingly rapid recovery from the ashes after World War II. I know it is the fact that many foreigners visiting Japan uh, uh, often surprised that the Japanese public transportation is always very punctual. Trains arrive within plus minus one minute. The famous uh, bullet train called Shinkansen almost always arrive and leave at exact timetable. I travel a lot in foreign nations for international meetings. I have not observed this kind of a almost almost pathological, I shouldn't say pathological punctuality, but it is a fact. And uh, this uh, amazing attention to details is seen in many other things in technology, uh, culinary or restaurant industry, and art. For example, Japanese craftsmanship such as paintings, decorations, furniture, delicate chinas, always impress people visiting Japan, and they are fascinated by them. Japanese artists had had a big influence in European art in 19th century. European impressionists like uh, Monet, Van Gogh, and Emile Gall, uh, craft artists, were all influenced greatly by Japanese artists like uh, Katsushika Hokusai, uh, Ando Katsushige, and many other artists uh, in Japan in 100 years ago. So people is the most important resources in Japan. We have more than 2,000 years history, and although it is an iron nation, we have been ex- exposed to different culture many years, even more than 14 years ago. We have frequent cultural exchange with China, Korea, and even with uh, Southeast Asian countries. There are a large number of immigrants from uh, these countries. In more recent years, somewhere between the 16th century to 18th century, Dutch and uh, Portugal have been in Japan very often, and they trade a lot of goods with Japan. In these years, Japanese were so curious about the foreign cultures and technologies and tried very, very hard to absorb everything they thought useful to Japan. So Japan is not a monolith country in terms of races, culture, and technology. Toward the end of Edo era, that is late 18th century to early 19th century, even though Tokugawa Shogun, the ruler of Japan at that time, had isolated Japan from the outside world, people were aware of what was going on outside Japan and tried hard to absorb information on European nations as well as USA. Talking about innovations, uh, when it comes down to healthcare, we are not without problem. For disruptive uh, innovation, you need to be very imaginative and look far ahead in the future. Japanese are generally reluctant 
jump in the uncharted territory, especially in medical devices and pharmaceutical products. They are afraid of making mistakes because of safety issues. Because of these reasons, the import of those medical products is in excess over export. We have capabilities and skills, so we should be leading the world in healthcare industries. For example, Japan is leading in stem cell research as Professor Yamanaka received Nobel Prize several years ago. Japan should invest more in those areas we excel. Unfortunately, the government tried to invest in too many uh, areas at the same time. Even Professor Yamanaka is not receiving adequate support from the government. The, the investment needs to be targeted with limited resources. That is uh, my feeling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, as, as I mentioned in during one of our previous conversations, I was in uh, Japan one time and I stepped out of the hotel and the the bus schedule said the bus is going to arrive in front of the hotel at 4.03 p.m. in the afternoon. And I, I almost started laughing. I was like, how is that possible? They're going to be controlling to such an accuracy. And at 4.03, the, turn actually, the, the bus was turning around the circle coming toward the hotel. Very impressive. And also what I enjoyed, <laughs> the culture is very clean, the CDs and Taxi drivers are wearing white gloves. They they take pride in what they do. So I just want to compliment you on that because I also travel to many, many countries, but things that have stood out for me about Japan is very, very impressive. And I, I would in say love almost a pathological. <laughs> <laughs> so so um, obviously, Dr. Omura, the whole pandemic, the global pandemic right now, caused by coronavirus, COVID-19, is impacting pretty much every country that I know of or there is a threat uh, of, of impacting them. Some countries are taking the blunt of it, like uh, Italy, uh, Iran, uh, China. And I just want to get an update in terms of uh, the COVID-19 in Japan. What's the status of the pandemic in Japan, and how is it impacting the communities all around Japan right now? Okay, uh, this yeah, this is very worrisome. Uh, you know the situation uh, world over. Uh, as for Japan, for the time being, we are holding up. It may not uh, last long. As of March twenty-eighth, uh, just a few days ago, the total number infected in Japan is sixteen. 1683, 1683, and 54 deaths. The mortality rate is a little over 3%, which is twice of that of the U.S., so it's not very low. We don't know this is an accurate number because the number of the PCR tested is just over 20,000, far less than that of Korea. The total number of the infected in Japan may be much larger and mortality rate lower. There are two reasons why Japanese government is reluctant to test more aggressively. First, uh, the sensitivity of the PCR test is 
about seventy uh, percent. It has a very high false negative rate, and access to acute care hospitals are very easy in Japan. These are cultural things. You know, though we have a very good healthcare system, but uh, people very easily visit the uh, hospital. So, if all the mild to moderate patients visit hospital uh, now, we will be very easily overwhelmed, like the situation in Italy and the U.S. And also, nosocomial infection is very scary once it happens, as you know. The regions currently at great risk are Tokyo, Osaka, Kobe, and Hokkaido Island. Although the regions other than Tokyo have been taking more aggressive approach, we have the impression that Tokyo has been slow in taking drastic measures. The number of infected, however, started rising in Tokyo for the past few days. It was 47 reported in Tokyo in Thursday, jumped from 17 Wednesday, last Wednesday. It was 60 just yesterday, so we are very concerned and the governor of Tokyo, is Koike, has asked to stay home during this weekend last Friday, which is I'm doing right now. I'm at home. <laughs> And quarantine myself, <laughs> although I'm not a coronavirus uh, patient. Are the non-essential businesses, such as restaurants, concerts, places like that, are, are they closed now, or are they still open for business? Yes. Uh, yeah, many of them in downtown Tokyo uh, are still open, but many of them just closed. So uh, they're just up to them. You know, the government does not mandate closure of this restaurant. But uh, you know, watching the TV, almost nobody in downtown Tokyo today. So I think it's a good thing. So people are following the government, uh, you know, the recommendation. And hopefully this will work and uh, de- uh, reduce the number of the you know, infected uh, uh, per day. Dr. Omura, also when I was in Japan, uh I remember there is a significant reliance on on subway systems in Japan. Are the subway system fully operational and people are are still using the subway? And how's that helping with the whole COVID nineteen situation? As opposed to the New York, you know, the, all the you know, public transport, uh, transportation is in action. But uh, the government uh, are recommending, you know, the telework, the work at home, and also, you know, the uh, this uh, commit, committing time adjustment. You know, the come to the company later in the morning or earlier in the morning, and then uh, the company uh, go home earlier or later. So this is working. And when you ride the train in Tokyo right now, not very crowded. So, uh, you know, the government, uh, this uh, announcement, uh, it's, you know, influence on the people's uh, behavior right now. So I think it's a good thing. Understanding that COVID-19 emerged out of China, that was the at least based on all the news that has been spreading around. And there was a huge pandemic that started in China, led to significant number of deaths in China. 
when you look at how the Chinese government went about controlling the pandemic versus what's happening in China, what are the differences? And then what can countries really learn from both what China is doing as well as what's transpiring in Japan right now? Okay. Uh, as for China, you know, the at least their major after the pandemic uh, exploded uh, had been very effective, but uh, only one party dictatorial country can do that, you know, the uh, that strong measure. Um, you know, despite China is the second largest economy, the Chinese healthcare system has been less than perfect, and uh, I think they are irresponsible. They did not disclose this, uh, you know, the community transmission, you know, the uh, infection uh, among the people's people. Uh, I think they knew this uh, in early December, but they kept it secret for almost two months. So this is very, you know, irresponsible thing. And uh, China has a lot of, you know, the large modern hospitals, especially army or government hospitals in big cities, which provide the top of the notch healthcare. However, the number of well-equipped hostels are not meeting the need of all the population. Even in a big city like Beijing or, you know, the Wuhan, waiting time is long and out-of-the-pocket payment is kind of high. So when ordinary people may go into bankruptcy when they have serious, serious diseases to, to be treated due to inadequate health insurance system in China. And also social security system is uh, not adequate. So even Japanese foreign uh, department warned Japanese who live in China about the waiting times and large out-of-pocket uh, payments. So Chinese healthcare system are not prepared for this type of pandemic. But once it happened, you know, the, it's amazing they built, uh, you know, the almost like a 3,000 bed in a couple of weeks. That's only, you know, the, this uh, one-party uh, dictatorial nation can do that. So that, you know, the policy worked very well, but uh, we are democratic nations, Japan and uh, United States and European countries, so we cannot do that, uh, that kind of, you know, the very uh, mandatory action, uh, you know, just like that. And, uh, well, uh, about this uh, Chinese, uh, you know, the healthcare system have a lot of room to improve, and uh, for that aspect, uh, uh, I think uh, Japan, ha you know, we can help, you know, the, uh, China to improve their healthcare system. And uh, after, you know, this pandemic dies down, oh, well, we have a lot of, you know, things we can uh, do for China. So the fundamental flaw with the Chinese, uh, I would say the 
China, uh, not, uh, I don't want to say the Chinese government, but the society, is that the ratio of the hospitals ready on a standby to admit they, they have more than billion people in population. So if there's a significant pandemic, they can easily overwhelm their own medical system and they are not ready to handle that situation in China. In contrast, what is the ratio of hospitals to the number of populations in Japan? And is there the readiness? Well, the number of the hospital, you know, per population in Japan, is, this is unusually high. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's uh, about three to four times of that of the OECD average. And this is actually a problem in Japan. You know, the Japanese health care system uh, has been working so well after the World War II. And uh, at the minimum cost, uh, you know, the Japanese uh, government has been keeping the health among Japanese population. And our life expectancy is one of the longest in the world. And people are healthy. However, uh, because of this, uh, too many hospitals, Population uh, and the too easy access to healthcare. Japanese uh, have been abusing this healthcare system. This is a problem, and this is causing some strain in our healthcare system. As you know, the the healthcare system in Japan is a universal access uh, system, and uh, this uh, health insurance system has been mandated by Japan, uh, Japanese government almost like uh, 60 years ago. And it's been very successful. And uh, at that time, you know, the, our economy is, uh, was growing so rapidly and uh, we could afford to provide so many, you know, the healthcare uh, facility. Uh, to the population. But as uh, you know, the, uh, nowadays it's an uh, aging nation and uh, more than uh, probably the aging population is the highest in the world. So the, we have, uh, you know, the sort of budget shortage to maintain this uh, healthcare system. Uh, Nobody in Japan is without uh, health insurance. This is the mandate. And uh, we have uh, several health insurance unions, depend upon which industry you, you know, that belong, you work. And, uh, if, you know, you work, uh, in large industries, uh, they have a large industry health, health insurance union, and uh, health insurance premiums, uh, very low, so it, it's uh, easy to maintain this uh, system. But uh, when it comes down to other industry systems, like a culinary associations or uh, you know the small industry uh, business groups, insurance unions, uh, uh, the premium is you know kind of increasing very rapidly recently. And the government tried to you know give a uh, you know, subsidy to these unions, and uh, somehow we are maintaining the system, but it's becoming 
a problem in Japan. So we're going to have to do something about, uh, you know, the reform uh, uh, of this healthcare system. So, uh, Dr. Omura, just for sake of clarity, clarity again, because not too many listeners, I'm sure, they're familiar with Japan and uh, more specifically about the healthcare system in Japan. So my understanding is, and I just want to get clarification from you, that you as a top-level physician in Japan and somebody who's working in a Starbucks in Tokyo, you may have a different type of insurance, but but when it comes to going to the hospital, your out-of-pocket expenses, the quality of the medical care you receive is identical. Is that correct? Yeah, yes, uh, you are correct. Uh, you know, the, also the out-of-pocket payment is also exactly the same. And uh, so that is why, you know, even the, you know, the people who don't have enough money or not rich people can visit hospital very easily. And uh, so actually, you know, the, even the, for uh, common cold or just a uh, mild, moderate, uh, you know, the disease, you know, they casually visit hospitals. And uh, this used to work before. But this is causing some strain in our healthcare system, as you can imagine. And the uh, government has to give more subsidy to these, uh, you know, the small business insurance union, as uh, some of the hospitals who are, you know, having a uh, you know, financial problem. But uh, we can't keep doing that. So we're going to have to do something about uh uh, radical reform of the Japanese healthcare system. Dr. Umura, one thing I do want to highlight for, again, many of our listeners, is that the difference between the mandated national coverage for healthcare in Japan versus the United States. Because in the United States, it all started with President Obama under the Affordable Care Act. But the major difference that I want to highlight here is currently there are different insurance companies in, in the United States and also depending on which state you're in. But, but none of these participating members in various healthcare insurance systems will receive the same quality of care uh, because obviously somebody can afford a much better healthcare insurance in the United States and somebody who can't is not going to be able to achieve and access the highest quality of care in 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 the United States. But in Japan, if I'm not mistaken, the government subsidizes the difference. And therefore, somebody who has a low income and is working minimum wage job versus Dr. Akido Mura, who's very well established, at the end, regardless of what union is providing for you guys top of insurance, you will have the same exact out-of-pocket and quality of care. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct, yes. And that's something that I think U.S. is falling behind on, in my humble personal view. How to make the coverage pay much plain field for everyone. Yes, that discussion, you know, the... I think, you know, the, in the United States, if you want to solve this, uh, you know, the 
healthcare service equality. But government has to mandate the, to buy, you know, the, you, when you have more, you know, insurance, you know, the, uh, what I mean, the, when you get more healthy people into the, you know, this cohort of insurance group, the premium will be cheaper. And uh, that is the only way to achieve this, you know, the reasonable, you know, the level of premium among the population. I think, you know, the healthcare is the right of the people. So to achieve that, the government should mandate for everybody to buy insurance. If we want to, uh, some, you know, the conservative people who want to call it uh, socialist, so be it. You know, the, it's a, just a simple math. You have to get as many, you know, uh, people as possible to uh, get them participate in the health insurance group. That's the only way. Dr. Omura, I'd like to go back to the topic of coronavirus for one more minute. Uh, understanding the nature of viruses, because viruses are not living. There's nothing for you to kill. And there are just dead pieces of biological fragments that they're laying around through billions of or millions of years of evolution. But exactly to my point is these viruses, even though they are not living, they have the capability to change and mutate, meaning something can mutate where it was being spread through touch or touching hard surfaces can go airborne, which is very dangerous. That is CDC's nightmare. Do you see any or are you aware of any news about COVID-19 mutating, uh, changing the way it's actually infecting people? Or is it still at that stage where it's certainly getting passed around through touch and contact? Um. The moment I have not heard any evidence of uh, coronavirus uh, mutation, and uh, uh, you know the government has not instructed us to change our life, you know the style way of you know the moving around. Uh, it's exactly same as uh, before, and also the maybe same as uh, the situation in the US. As you know the. 80% or more people infected shows almost no symptom or just mild. And uh, it is uh, exactly true in Japan over the age of 60, the getting sicker and uh, the rate of mortality actually rises. And uh, so it has not changed uh, for the moment. Some of the latest information we have here is uh, when you have, uh, you know, the mild common cold symptoms, which is combined with uh, uh, pneumonia seen in computed tomography findings, uh, uh, something like a very mild, you know, the pneumonia in peripheral region of the lung, that is very you know, strong sign of a you know, coronavirus infection, and it's more reliable than, you know, PCR test. 
zero you know the uh, sensitivity almost seventy percent so it's not very reliable that the PCR test so just uh, mild symptoms with uh, uh, mild uh, pneumonia in PT finding is very reliable. Also, uh, uh, there are some you know the information about uh, uh, early symptom of the coronavirus. When you start feeling like something strange in smell and taste, a change in this uh, you know, the smell and taste sensation. Uh, could be a early sign of coronavirus because many of the patients start complaining of this, uh, you know, the uh, change in taste and the smell. So I think this is a very important information. But as for that, you know, the uh, mutation, we have not had any information so far. The change in taste uh, is and a smell. new piece of information for me and a smell. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. Yeah, you're quite welcome, yes. Mm. I'm hoping that uh, this whole pandemic will, will get under control and you know, the whole planet Earth can go back to its normal activities. It's been very devastating to a lot of communities uh, in the United States or abroad. Yes, uh, even Japan, the economy is getting worse, yes. <laughs> so I want to go back to some of the activities that you're currently involved in globally. Uh, and I understand that you're involved in the ISO committee. I, I know a lot of our listeners, again, don't know what ISO is, and would you explain that and then explain your role in terms of and your contributions? As you know, ISO is the, uh, the organization which specialized in writing standards for all the commercial products like uh, airplanes, automobiles, computers, medical devices, such as ventilators and so forth. There are more than 300 technical committees of ISO organization, which covers specific, you know, each uh, technical committee covers specific device. And international standards are very important in maintaining the quality and safety of the product. I have been involved in ISO business for more than 30 years as head of a Japanese delegate for ISO Technical Committee 121, which writes standards for medical devices in the area of anesthesia and intensive cares. And uh, through, you know, the government uh, ministries, uh, Ministry of, uh, you know, the Trade and the Economy, and also Ministry of Health uh, oversee this, uh, you know, uh, activity. And so we are supported by the government. And about four years ago, I was uh, nominated uh, as one of the uh, uh, ISO TC uh, committee, that is TC 121, you know, and uh, subcommittee three, uh, which, uh, you know, writes the standard for critical care ventilators, the very current topics, and related devices such as all the monitoring devices like pulse oximeter, ECG, EEG, and so forth. And I was nominated as the international chair of this subcommittee uh, with unanimous support by 27 participating member nations. 
So I have been busy, you know, the go back and forth and uh, uh, hold the meeting uh, here and there in Europe and the United States and Japan. And uh, my term as chair will last until the end of 2025. By then, I'll be uh, almost like 83. (laughs) It's the young man. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Omura, uh, I, I just want to clarify something for all of our listeners so they understand the level of contribution you're making to global healthcare. So in the United States uh, or every country where you have a drug or medical device, you actually have to register through the uh, what we call notified body or the agency to review and approve the safety and efficacy of that device or drug. In the United States, that is uh, Food and Drug Administration. In other countries are called Minister of Health or different types of labels for that part of the agency. Um, ISO committee is the International Standardization Organization, which is started in parallel to FDA's activities in the United States and then has now reached to the level that actually FDA acknowledges the guidelines coming from ISO as something that should be mandated in addition to what FDA is requiring. So you are uh, the chair of the ISO committee for anesthesiology, which is held in Europe uh, on an annual basis. Am I correct? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, you are right. You are correct. And and you are, since you said you're, you're also dealing with uh, ventilators, how they are manufactured, how they are practiced, uh, the guidelines related to to that area of medicine. How how is the shortage of ventilators in in response to the COVID nineteen pandemic? Is this something that the ISO committee responding to, or or they are not being involved? Because I understand there's a significant shortage of ventilators in hospitals dealing with uh, COVID nineteen patients. You know, the, the responsibility of ISO committee is not actually, as they say, you know, the policy matters, like, you know, the how many ventilators we should uh, manufacture uh, for population. That is not our uh, policy. Uh, actually, our, you know, the work is to ensure, you know, the, uh, the very safe, high-quality ventilator for any nation uh, who requires these ventilators. But, uh, you know, the, this type of, you know, the pandemic and how we to deal with is not, uh, not actually there, uh, you know, the responsibility for that. And uh, currently, we, uh, the ISO central office, uh, you know, is uh, telling us uh, to hold up any uh, physical meetings uh, you understand the reason. Uh, and uh, we are doing a virtual meeting. But, you know, it, it's very difficult to write the standards on this, uh, you know, the virtual meeting. Uh, you know, it takes uh, so many discussions and time. So, uh, ISO Central Office, you know, the, uh, is asking us to think of, of uh, you know, the holding this, uh, 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 you know, writing standards for Six months uh, for the time being, we have six months hold status, uh, 
and asking us how do you think about it. And we all agree because all the members of this ISO committee are healthcare workers and manufacturers and regulators. And they are currently very busy dealing with the corona pandemic in each country. I understand. I understand. It, it really, the coronavirus is changing the culture of how we conduct business globally. Yeah, and uh, I run one of the university hospitals in, in Japan, so I, you know, we have been uh, holding a meeting um, every other day to cope with this situation, and it's a very fluid situation and changing every day. So, you know, we cannot relax at this moment. So, uh, but for our business, I'm sure after six months or something, we start meeting again and uh, ensure this uh, very uh, high quality, safe product like a ventilator. Yes. I hope so. I hope so. And then one last question on COVID-19 before we move on to other topics. Uh, from what you're seeing in China, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Chinese government didn't really take a proactive response to controlling the pandemic that was emerging out of China, which really has now spread worldwide. When you look at how China handled the pandemic versus United States versus Japan or uh, Italy or parts of Europe, are there any lessons for us to learn in response to how we can actually do it better uh, next time around when something happens? And then what can other countries still do that they are not doing, in your opinion, in terms of controlling the pandemic? Right. Yeah. You know, frankly speaking, you know, the, uh, I don't think we have a lot to learn from China. You know, the, but uh, you act as, you know, early as possible to, you know, the limit the people's movement and maybe shut down some, you know, the, the town to prevent the spread. And for that, the Chinese government did a very uh, good job. I, I, I don't, I don't know, you know, disagree with that. But problem is, uh, you know, the, they did not act as early as possible about this trust transmission program, if they acted much earlier in December or January, and also let us, uh, the world know this is a very serious problem and uh, that can uh, cause this, uh, you know, the uh, community transmission, we would have been much better shape now. So, Yes, I agree that China, this government did, uh, did very well after January, but uh, before that, they could have done much, much more. So I, I can understand that there have been some, you know, the class action suits, you know, in making in the United States. I can understand the feeling and <laughs> the reason. Dr. Umar, I think there is also something to be said about having a, having a diligent culture within communities worldwide when we are dealing with infectious diseases that can literally go and cause pandemic. Um, you know, COVID-19 is a good example of that. Um, in some countries, from what I'm hearing from some of my colleagues, is that although the government is trying to control and making sure 
communities are getting together in large numbers so that they can prevent the spread of COVID-19, but people culturally are not taking it seriously. And that has been a huge issue in some countries. And in the United States, um, you know, there are, there are talks of some college kids here and there. They go on spring break because there was just a spring break for uh, college uh, students here in the United States. So I think those are some of the problems that has to emerge out of the communities as a grassroots movement to make sure they're assisting the government in controlling the pandemic. Otherwise, the government by itself, I don't think is going to be successful in controlling. Unless you're running a dictatorial government like China, the, the, you know, from the news I heard, they were welding doors and keeping citizens in their homes. So which I don't think this is something we want to practice in democratic countries. That, but I want right. to go so back. We need the cooperation from the people. Hmm. Exactly, exactly. I want to go back to the comment that you made um, about some action lawsuits that are being filed. Can you expand on that, if you have any news on that, in regards to COVID-19? No, you know, this is happening in the U.S., not in Japan, though. And uh, I, uh, yeah, I got this, uh, you know, information from the internet and also the uh, Japanese television. And uh, there are several, uh, you know, the class action uh, suits in the making in the U.S. Yeah, I know there there have been some class action lawsuit against some companies, uh, including Purell. Oh, maybe to the company too, but the, to Chinese government. Oh, I see. Yeah, that's happening in the U.S. I understand. I understand. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, what you said is uh, right. You know the history. You know the we are in democratic uh, uh, countries. Uh, you know the people need to you know uh, respond to government. Uh, you know the call and uh, 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 behave very responsibly and uh, try not to, you know to gather or you know the have a party or you know so everything goes away. And disappear in one day, uh, like uh, you know, some uh, some politician said. <laughs> That's very important. And the Japanese are very you know the diligent and uh, serious people. So when you uh, and the government recommend that, they really follow that. That's happening in this during weekend in Japan. So I hope you know that happen uh, you know throughout the world. Uh, you know, the, as you know, the Italy and Spain, these people are very open-minded and kind people, and they are very easygoing. <laughs> and uh, they uh, are kind of, you know, resistant to change their lifestyle. So I can understand that, but, uh, you know, we have to be responsible, and we have to respond, uh, behave responsibly. Uh, you are exactly right in that, uh, yeah, uh, discussion argument. And, and my last point on COVID-19 is that a few days ago, uh, we received a copy of a warning notice, uh, if I can uh, refer to it as such, uh, coming out of the U.S. government uh, secret uh, service agency, CIA, in regards to warning to all the citizens in the United States because the COVID-19, when there is fear, a lot of some people or companies uh, will try to take advantage of 
the fear that is emerging out of out of the community, and there are lots of cases of fraud and so on that is happening. So it's very well no well no. Um, we should note this to our listeners that this is something that everybody should be very aware of uh, in terms of not fall into those kind of traps. And then on on the opposite side of it, there are con- uh, companies that because they have been making certain uh, claims regarding their product performance or labels and so on, pri- probably prior to COVID-19 wasn't so much uh, as a sensitive issue, but when it comes to really people uh, right now facing a pandemic, the government is watching how major companies, at least to the extent they can, how they are behaving so they are not taking advantage of the, their citizens. And Purell, which I mentioned earlier, they were making certain claims that FDA, in terms of what their product can kill, eradicate, in terms of what viruses bacteria and so on and they got a slap with a warning notice from uh, uh, US FDA and from what I have heard last was there was an action class lawsuit being filed against them as well so there are a lot of those kind of uh, issues that unfortunately accompanies pandemics and disasters uh, there are, you know and citizens they should be very very careful uh, not to fall into that so any other last uh, comment, anything else you want to mention on COVID-19 uh, before we move on to my last topic of discussion, which is about your books? I think that's about it. Uh, uh, one question I may ask, you know, the, the uh, United States president asked the GM to produce, uh, you know, the Turkey ventilators. How is that possible? It, it has uh, so many, you know, the parts imported from the other nations and uh, the need of, you know, special, you know, the engineering uh, skills to build uh, ventilators. And do you think General Motors can really make uh, manufacture critical ventilators? Well, I think uh, during World War II, if to the, you know, to the extent that I'm familiar with it, uh, is that during a uh, major crisis, the U.S. government, especially the President of the United States, can actually use its powers to uh, pass certain act where it will allow... Uh, defense uh, production law. Exactly. So they are, U- United States is looking at the pandemic as something as big as a World War II that is really threatening the health and the integrity of the United States. So when when the president actually goes as far as uh, bringing those kind of actions out, then if General Ford can, you know, uh, they, they used to make uh, tanks or whatever else they used to do for World War II, but they are capable of, they have phenomenal mechanical engineers. And I'm not just talking about Ford in general. I'm talking about a lot of companies that they are in the United States they have the talent that they, in an emergency they can get together and it's very creative that they can start putting these ventilators. I mean, you can read the patents, get some brilliant engineers together, in, and they can respond very quickly. And I think that's something that uh, I, I think uh, we should give credit to U.S. government for taking actions like that. I see. 
So you think uh, that the, the United government should have uh, acted, you know, the sooner in, you know, the production law in action? I don't know if I would say they should done it sooner. I, I think they are doing it appropriately, right? So, I mean, it, it, it you know, just, just shutting down the economy is not an easy thing. What they have done is trying to making sure at least it's not a spreading, right? So now they're starting to bring uh, whatever tools they have to the table to actually start combating it. So it, it's a challenge for every every government around the world. Yeah, yeah. So I, I do want to change the sub- subject to something that is your passion, and that's your books that you've been writing. I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, you have written seven books so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's just just published, uh, you know, a few days ago. Yes. Congratulations! Congratulations! Thank you very much. So, and I, and I think President Abe recognized one of your books, which the content was used uh, in terms of how to best modify the Japanese healthcare system. So, I, I just want you to bring up the major points in your book, and uh, you know what's your so passionate about that you want to see change, and share that with us. Uh huh. Okay, you know, the, it's a a sort of a 220 pages book, uh, so, uh, you know, it's kind of difficult to summarize in a a few words, but, uh, anyway, the, the point, the point is, uh, you know, the, uh, there is a very worrisome, uh, you know, the situation, uh, going in the world. That is one, one of the problem is, uh, health status of the world population. Is getting worse, and uh, just one good example is in 1980, the number of diabetics in the world is just a uh, one billion. But almost like uh, ten years ago, it was already four billions of you know the world population is. Diabetic or pre-diabetic, four times in thirty years. So you know the, we're gonna have to do something because diabetes is a cause of every other disease like uh, you know stroke or cardiovascular disease or even cancers. So we're gonna have to you know, control and improve the health of world population right now. But but on the other hand, the government, uh, you know, the revenue has been decreasing for the past many years in, among the OECD countries uh, because you know, the, the global economy and major companies uh, uh, have a factories in some of the countries which has the lowest, you know, corporate tax uh, rate. And uh, this has been happening all over the world, so they don't pay the tax to their own government. And uh, another thing is uh, uh, income inequality is also increasing rapidly, especially among the, you know, the OECD nations. And uh, these are very worrisome situations, and we need to act to improve healthcare system, social security system, 
and this tax system. Uh, otherwise, we're gonna have, uh, we cannot be ready for healthcare disaster like this pandemic, corona uh, pandemic. So we need to improve, you know, these uh, structure and uh, system throughout the world. And uh, this, uh, this is a major point of my book. And also, the workforce in the healthcare industry and business are very significant portion of the labor force. So, if well, we invest more in this healthcare, we create more jobs and improve the health status of the world population and reduce the risk of getting stroke and cardiovascular other cancers and the other serious disease, that will reduce uh, ultimately healthcare costs. That is uh, in a major point in my book. Is is your book only in Japanese or is it also uh, yeah uh, only in Japanese? In... Uh... Okay, so it, it, I definitely look forward to getting a English version of your book, but. Uh, Going back to the topic of diabetes you just mentioned is I was doing uh, some reading on diabetes because we are planning to do a specific podcast uh, program just on diabetes. Actually, it's going to be in a four-part series. And it's amazing to see that the cost of diabetes in the United States, I'm not talking about global, just in the U.S., the cost of diabetes uh, and the impact on the economy, when you combine all that together, it almost equals to how much U.S. government is spending on a global basis on their military. Just to put a point of reference for a lot of listeners to understand what you're talking about. So it's not just our neighbor or dad or grandpa who is suffering from diabetes. I mean, if this, this is also a silent pandemic in my opinion that is exactly uh, I, I can't uh, I agree with you more mm. at least from a u.s point of view from what i have read uh, is that the u.s government subsidizes sugar which i can't even comprehend that uh, when we are having a huge issue with diabetes um, and the cost that is involved then on the flip side of the coin there, there is, people talk about monopoly, but there is a quote-unquote somewhat monopoly on, on manufacturing insulin in the United States, where manufacturers in the 80s or 90s, they used to manufacture generic uh, insulin that costed only a few dollars for patients. They have made significant improvements on the insulin. Now we have short-acting, fast-acting, different versions of, of it. But correspondingly, the price of those improved insulin now exceeds $100 per unit. And that's why a lot of Americans are who are insulin-dependent are rationing their insulin. But the, the generic insulin, if it was available, which is today sold in India for $9 a unit. So the, these kind of inequalities 
is I think is only harming patients and citizens. Somehow, I don't know the solution, whether the government should be involved or is a free market needs to correct itself, but it's putting a lot of people in, uh, in a world of hurt. So I couldn't agree with you more, you know, the, for this uh, skyrocketing drug, drug prices, uh, including this uh, insulin. You know, the drug company, uh, you know, points out very high cost of R&D for new drugs. But, you know, the, how can they explain more than, I would say, 95% of drugs they sell has been on the market for many years. So they, these are not new drugs, but their prices also keep increasing rapidly, or increasing insulin. So there must be somebody ripping off people. With this uh, tremendous concentration of wealth and skills in the U.S., uh, you cannot take care of the health and of all citizens, and people cannot buy health insurances and necessary medicine. There is something very wrong about this system in the U.S. Yeah, um, uh, Dr. Moro, I'm not pointing out just pharmaceutical companies to be at fault. I think the healthcare system in general is broken. And that needs to be fixed because in every corner of it you touch, there are there are serious issues that when Obama made the healthcare mandatory for everyone, and when you take an inefficient system trying to cover the entire population and all citizens in the country, is gonna exaggerate those inefficiencies in the system, creating even more problems. So I think we need some serious, brilliant people that can pay attention and correct the system. Uh, you know, that's, I think that's something needs to be done. There has to be a correction made at some point. And also, you know, the, we should maintain the health of, you know, the uh, population. This is a very serious issue. And once they get diabetes and they get sick, and uh, go, uh, visit the emergency room, that will cause enormous, you know, the cost of healthcare. So to, to do that, you know, public education is very important. Also, the establish good health insurance system. So everybody feel like, you know, when I, I feel something wrong with my body, but uh, visit the hospital is so expensive and I can't afford that. That kind of feeling we should you know, uh, overcome. And uh, so this is very important. The healthcare system reform is very important, I think. I, I think that system needs to be re-looked at globally. As you mentioned, like in Japan, you, you, the citizens are blessed that the ratio of hospitals and clinics is such to the number of citizens that they can easily, even for a simple cold, they can visit the hospital and the insurance is subsidized by, by the government is phenomenal. And on flip side of it in the United States, you get somebody who is rationing insulin and dies because can't access insulin and go to the hospital because the healthcare system doesn't provide or allow that. It's just there are those major discrepancies. I think something to be highlighted and that's part of this program to really highlight those issues uh, so probably then we can create a wave or a movement that can actually lead to a 
appropriate correction for these kind of problems. So, Dr. Omura, any closing thoughts for um, at the end of the program? Do you, do you want to share your uh, Twitter or do you have a website? If people want to send you questions, how, how do they contact you? Oh, okay, so like I said, I don't do tweet, Twitter. <laughs> Maybe I should follow you know, the, the friends of the United States. <laughs> uh, so what, what I do is, uh, uh, you know, the, like I said, uh, writing a, the summary, maybe uh, several pages, more than that, uh, you know, of my book, and send it to you by email. So maybe you can uh, get that uh, available for the people who are interested in my book. Fantastic. And then we can share that on, on our uh, Twitter page or LinkedIn page with our listeners. So once again, I want to really thank you. You're being extremely generous with your time. Um, I have known you for nearly 20 years, and it's been a pleasure and honor to know somebody of your caliber, and I'm saying this genuinely. And uh, thank you very much for being on the program. Well, well you're welcome, Arunta. Thank you very much for giving me a chance to ex- express my opinion. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Absolutely. You stay safe in this environment, especially with COVID-19. I wish you health, your family, colleagues, everybody, uh, and our listeners uh, to be safe and, and uh, stay well. For more information, please visit simplemedicines.com, where we are building a community of healthcare professionals and patients to continue our discussions about trends and problems that we are experiencing in the medical world today. Thank you.